Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. I've read that about 28% of all people have and fall into various categories of movement disorders. Probably the most widely known is Parkinson's disease, but there is ataxia, dystonia, essential tremors, Huntington's disease, tics and Tourette's, a group known as the palsies, and others. Bruno Gallo is a neurologist with the Baptist Health Center in Miami, and he does a lot of work in this clinical area, and he kindly agreed to spend time with us to give us some oversight and a little understanding of what this is all about. Dr. Gallo, thank you for joining us. Good morning. What is a movement disorder? Is there a common denominator to all these conditions? Are they really separate entities? There really isn't one common denominator. We always look for that. We always look for the the one causative or one responsible agent or reason for them, and and it really isn't. It's a constellation across huge gamut of different neurologic conditions and diseases that present that are grouped into a category of movement disorders. When something either doesn't move and it's supposed to or moves too much and it's not supposed to, then it gets grouped into this large bucket, if you will. The most common movement disorder in the United States is a benign one. It's called benign essential tremors. But because it's benign and it's oftentimes might not necessarily affect people's quality of life because it does not affect their lifespan, a lot of people don't seek medical attention. The most common or widespread one, simply because of the notoriety of some of the patients that we have in the country, is, as you mentioned, Parkinson's disease. And that's taken the forefront lately with respect to many of the movement disorders when people think of them that way. So Parkinson's, fortunately, we have some treatments, essential tremors, not really. So it already begins to fall into subcategories of what we can do for them. What seems to be, if there is anything new, the undercurrent notion about the etiology of Parkinson's disease. We think that this disorder, Parkinson's disease itself, is just the lack of one chemical in the brain. And indeed, it really is the lack of that one chemical that produces the motoric complaints and problems that lead patients to present to a physician's office. Tremors, rigidity, poverty of movement, the bradykinesia, which is slow movement. And then late in the course of the disease, the postural instability and balance problems. In essence, Parkinson's disease itself is a constellation of syndromes that start years to decades before the patients actually present. If you ask, well, what causes Parkinson's, the the truthful answer is we really don't know. But we have many treatments available today, treatments that started in the late 1960s because of our understanding of this one neurochemical that's missing the brain. These treatments and therapies are vast. There's medications, and the medications and the delivery systems of the medications have changed drastically to where it's not just pills. And in 2017, the mainstay of therapy for Parkinson's disease remains medications, but in many different forms. They can be long-acting delivery systems and capsules. There are patches that can be used. There's a gel of dopamine that can be instilled into patients with a pump that patients can carry for 16 hours a day. There are injections of very, very powerful dopamine agonist drugs that within minutes can kick a patient on, and these act as nice rescue therapies. And finally, there's deep brain stimulation that is a physical effect on the brain by creating electrical fields in the brain, helping certain symptoms. Deep brain stimulation does not replace dopamine or any of the chemicals, and that's important to know as well. And finally, the holy grail, the things that everyone wants to have, is not available, and those are the cures, which they're a topic for a different podcast. But nonetheless, we're looking, but you're absolutely right. They do not exist today. The Parkinson's seems to be a deficiency of dopamine. Huntington's is somewhat the opposite. Yes, what happens in Huntington's disease 
is it's a genetic disorder. In this particular condition, you have a number of trinucleotide repeats. You know, our DNA is broken down into four different amino acids, and in this case, CAG, cytosine, adenine, and guanine, is repeated too much on a certain chromosome in the patient's DNA, and that produces an overactivity where over the course of time, the patients develop a psychiatric problem, dementing illnesses, and then finally the chorea, the characteristic dancing, writhing movements that are well known and described in patients with Huntington's disease. I remember in medical school, a teacher said that a very large part of a movement disorder diagnostic workup is simply to watch the patient walk down the hall and then to shake both hands. And he used to say, not just one hand, both hands. You have to see if it's bilateral. I would imagine that's just as true today as it was when I was in school. We, we dictate our notes and we, we speak to each other as colleagues with electronic medical records and the like, but I can't tell you how many times it's just so vitally important to get in front of the patient. My own colleagues will call me from the hospital and say, hey, we have someone in, in, in this room who's doing this and they do their best and they do, they do an adequate description, but it's just so critical to see exactly what's going on. You have to visualize the patient. You have to see the patient. Shaking both hands is important because it establishes bilaterality, whether it's one side or the other, and that's very true. I had a, a professor an internship who told me if you walk into a room and the patient has their legs crossed, the neurologic exam is practically normal. And I tried to figure out what does he mean? And again, it has to do with that bilaterality. Now, that's not true. That's not something that we take as a, as a given, but it was, it was commonplace that bilaterality is always preached in, the, in medical school. One of the diagnoses that I think most people, perhaps, I, I, I hope I am correct in this assumption, do not really see as a movement disorder per se, but it's tics. And they just say, oh, it's a nervous tic, it's a nervous tic. How do you evaluate a tic? What, what's your process in trying to find out the origin of a tic? Here's something that's very key. Tics are repetitive and stereotypical. They can be benign children can have them all the way up through adults. And the most common and well-known tick disorder is Tourette's. But if you can predict as the patient moves, the next movement the patient will have, you're dealing with a tick disorder. If you cannot predict the next movement, then you're dealing with something else, acetosis and chorea and things like that. So watch the patient very carefully. If the patient rubs the nose, squints, squeezes their lips tight, and then touches their left ear. And the next time you see the, the series, if they rub the nose, if the next time is a squint and you can predict the squint, then you're dealing with a tick disorder, and that's important. Interesting. A lot of times people will come to me and I can see that they have a quiver or a tremor and I ask them what it is and they say they have ataxia. But ataxia apparently is not really a disease. It's just a manifestation. Is, is that correct? That is correct. Ataxia is completely different and a scope far off the topic for us today. But if the patients have a small shake or a tremor, it can be physiologic. Many people have it and it's benign. There's nothing to do for it. And it's okay. And that's fine as long as it's identified and, and, and known. Oftentimes, the very medications that we use can be tremorgenic. There are medicines that we use for certain treatments of bipolar disease and for epilepsy and things like that that can actually produce a small tremor in patients. Not particularly disabling. You stop the medicine, the tremor disappears, but ataxia is completely different. When you talked about medications, of course, for years and years, and it still is a very serious concern, is the whole notion of tardive dyskinesia. And people think that it's just from you know, the standard antipsychotic medications, but it can come from other medications as well. Give us, please, sir, an overview of what tardive dyskinesia is, how much do we have to worry about it, and the fact that we have some treatments now. So tardive dyskinesia 
amnesia is oftentimes seen as a complication from certain therapies. Although psychiatric medicines have historically been felt to be responsible for most tardive dyskinesias, they really are not. The largest culprit are gastrointestinal drugs used commonplace throughout medicine. Tardive dyskinesias are uncontrollable, abnormal movements that can affect the facial musculature predominantly, but can also involve the axial and in severe cases, the appendicular skeleton. So what that means is, you know, it causes you to kind of shake maybe your neck and your back and then also your arms in the worst of cases. The dyskinesias can't be stopped by uh, by the patients. And if you look at the word itself, this means abnormal or wrong and kinesias is movement. So it's just wrong movements or incorrect or bad movements that patients develop after exposure to certain medications. They're very common. In the past, the mainstay of therapy is, well, if you've given a patient a medicine this has started, you withdraw the drug. Oftentimes, the dyskinesias wouldn't even go away. They wouldn't disappear. In psychiatry, a common thing to do was when you needed certain medicines that had a risk of producing tardive dyskinesias, you added another medicine to try to allay or prevent the appearance of these dyskinesias. But if and when they did, you were obliged to stop the medicines altogether. There were no therapies or treatments for dyskinesias themselves. Now, in 2017, we've seen an advent of a lot of different things that have come into the arsenal of, of therapies that we have available. And believe it or not, two two brand new medications with indications for tardive dyskinesias. Ask your physician about these things if you think you're suffering from some strange movements of your lips, your mouth, your eyes, and you can't stop doing this and, and people have drawn your attention to it. It could be that you have tardive dyskinesias and that they can be treated effectively with these two newer agents that have just shown up on the market. One of them is a medicine specifically for tardive dyskinesia. The other one came out, interestingly enough, for the treatment of Huntington's disease and received the indication for tardive dyskinesia shortly thereafter because of the mechanism of action of each of the drugs. Both drugs uh, similar uh, affect a, a transporter in the neurons early on and then kind of prevent the release of dopamine to kind of control the movements. The treatment is probably lifelong because the presence of tardive dyskinesia is there. And it's not, it's not a condition that is definitely going to be present if you're exposed to any of these agents. I have a, a woman in my practice. She and her husband were exposed to GI medicine simultaneously when they both presented at the same time to an urgent care center. She developed tardive dyskinesia. The husband did also. The medications were withdrawn. Within two weeks, the husband's symptoms resolved, and he's never had a recurrence of them. She continues to suffer from these movements, and as a result, has become my patient, and I'm actively treating her. I remember, again, in residency in medical school, and tardive dyskinesia was not really that well understood yet. There was a tremendous amount of talk, and I still see it in some of the patients who come to me, that they want to take vitamin E. They want to take antioxidants, and that supposedly is supposed to reduce the likelihood of developing tardive dyskinesia. The use of high-dose antioxidant medications to reduce that oxidative stress, the rust, if you will, that cells undergo is ubiquitous across many different conditions in, in neurology in particular. I don't dissuade patients from doing something like this simply because I go by the theory of it couldn't hoit kind of thing. It's okay. If you want to try it, absolutely. It won't interfere with what I'm doing. But my experience has been that these particular therapies are not necessarily effective. My 
my observations as well. One of the really interesting things that's happened in medicine, and I suspect more in neurology, is that there is an old medication that used to be called a poison, namely Botox, and it seems to be finding quite the uh, wide acceptance and success. Can you tell us a little bit about what Botox is, how it works? So botulinum toxin is one of the most powerful poisons on the planet. It is a drug, a toxin, that when instilled goes into the nerve cells and attacks a part of the the cell that is responsible for releasing neurotransmitters. And so it paralyzes that muscle by virtue of the fact that the nerves that go to the muscle cannot conduct the electrical discharge. Botulinum toxin, of course, is something that's commonplace in the cosmetic world. If, if you don't want to have wrinkles and the like, it makes all your muscles flaccid. In the medical world, it's been a real godsend. It is effective in a certain constellation of movement disorders called dystonias, whether they're genetic or, or whether they're, they're separated by focality or segmental or generalized dystonias. These are, are conditions where slow, prolonged, painful muscular contractions that can deform an articulation or a joint. These are charley horses, but they're not like the charley horses you would imagine. They're the worst charley horses in the world. And Botox has been just a godsend in that regard because it helps that a lot. It's also been used and has indications in other conditions where muscles can contribute to certain symptoms. For example, migraine headache. If you have a horrible constellation of migraine headaches and you suffer from at least 12 to 14 migraine days a month and a part of that is determined by your physician, not necessarily the neurologist ideally, but by the physician, there's a muscle tension component to your migraine. Botulinum toxin is great for your migraine. It's used in conditions where patients have difficulty speaking, spasmodic dysphonia, uh, very difficult to instill, but when properly done with a trained physician, really helps that condition. Botox is something that you don't swallow, you don't take it. It has to be injected into the muscles and reconstituted or made at the very moment that you're going to get the injection. It has to be uh, fresh. So if you want to consider something like that for any neurologic condition, please ask your physician. Are young kids and adolescents somewhat exempt from it, if I can use that word? Is it more a clinical manifestation in late adult and the elderly? Is there any pattern like that? No, no one's exempt, unfortunately. Okay. Um, I'm very sorry to say. There are genetic diseases that affect you where you have a, a problem in every cell in your body and the genes are there and they're going to manifest themselves. When you have generalized dystonias because of problem with dystrophin and you've inherited DYT1 gene, you are going to have generalized dystonias at any point as a child, three, four, five, six, seven years of age. It's a horrible condition, which, by the way, is also treated with Botox and deep brain stimulation, which has a great indication in patients with dystonias. There are more cases of young onset Parkinson's disease that we are seeing now. And we're no better diagnosing Parkinson's disease than James Parkinson's was. He had an eloquent description of the disorder. There's just more of us now. And there are more of us that are getting older. So as conditions develop with a risk factor that is age, if you will, and Physicians are responsible for allowing patients to get to a certain age by controlling diabetes and blood pressure and cholesterol and making sure people eat healthy and exercise regularly and the like. Other neurodegenerative conditions will show up later in life as well. There's no bimodality. There's no one area more than the other. I think it's, it's, a, it's a gamut across all age groups. Make sure that you seek proper attention if for any reason something is suspicious. Does the science exist now so that we can test genetically before a child is born or before a couple even gets pregnant? Wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> there, there, there are tests, there 
are genetic tests that are available to test people. For genetic testing, you need to have counseling performed, especially if you are going to perform this in children. Most couples do not want genetic testing, my experience, my experience, in their unborns, and yet there are those people who insist on having it done. Karyotyping uh, endometrial tissue biopsies in an unborn can lead to a number of different tests that will describe a lot of different conditions that may or may not be present. Of course, amniocentesis is the most common one, but you can look for certain genetic conditions and chromosomal abnormalities by taking amniotic fluid and looking for some of the cells that have desquamated off or come off of the baby, and, and you can karyotype them as well. There are also tests available for things like Huntington's disease and DYT1 dystonia, but it opens up a huge bag of worms because these conditions oftentimes don't show up until later in life, especially Huntington's disease, and by then many patients have led a life. They have married and born children and the like, and, and so you've got to wonder whether or not you want to test the children for future generations or not. I'm, I'm sorry, that's the best I can give. No, that's that's an excellent oversight. I think it's um, that's, that's an excellent overview, and that's what people need to hear because that's what it is right now. You mentioned deep brain stimulation, and unfortunately, we're going to run out of time in a couple of minutes, but that is such an interesting concept, and I suspect most people do not understand it. So in your eloquent way, if you could crunch that down to a minute or so, what is deep brain? Oh, two minutes. This is what I've made a career out of, deep brain stimulation. So here we go. Deep brain stimulation is a physical effect. It's a pacemaker for the brain, if you will, a battery, which looks exactly like a cardiac pacemaker, is implanted into the chest of the patient, and an electrode. A wire goes under the skin. You don't see any of this, of course, outside. Under the scalp and into the brain. When the battery is activated, depending on the target you choose and the condition you're treating, there are many different targets in the brain uh, for the different conditions that we treat. This electrode will create an electrical field. The cells within range of that electrical field will, in essence, kind of become refractory. They'll stop working. And so deep brain stimulation is actually a misnomer. You don't stimulate anything. You're actually inhibiting the cells to help the symptoms of the patient. But we're Americans, and we don't like inhibition. We want to be stronger, faster, quicker, stimulating kind of thing. So that's where deep brain stimulation came from. It's deep targets in the brain that are stimulated, and that's it. We're only limited by the number of different places in the brain that we can place the electrodes. Uh, currently, Food and Drug Administration indications. That means that these are covered and standard procedures include Parkinson's disease, essential tremors, and dystonias of any type, generalized or focal or, or segmental, okay, with three different targets in the brain. There are protocols going on for all sorts of other conditions, and unfortunately, we'll probably run out of time. We can't talk about all the different conditions that are being considered. We can do that at another time. I thank you. This was amazingly understandable and articulately stated about a topic that, as we said at the very beginning, is enormous. Bruno Gallo is a neurologist at the Baptist Health Center in Miami. Dr. Gallo, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Strauss, thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. You too.